Welcome to Essential Ethics, brought to you by the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. I am your host, Professor John Massey, Medical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. This podcast is taken from our 2019 National Children's Bioethics Conference. The theme of the conference was respecting different perspectives. In the session, Dr. Sid Vermuri, Consultant Paediatric Palliative Medicine Specialist, Emmalina Finnegan, Palliative Care Nurse, and Dr. Bennett Sheridan, Paediatric Intensive Care Cardiac Specialist, discuss a difficult case of end-of-life care working with a family whose decisions were informed by their Islamic faiths. The session is called Respecting Families' Cultural and Religious Beliefs and Practices, Going Too Far or Not Going Far Enough. Chair of the session is Associate Professor Jenny Hinson, Director of the Statewide Palliative Care Service in Victoria. The case we're presenting is a a baby who was born to um, uh, uh, Lebanese-Australian family, uh, a family who identified with the uh, Islamic faith. This baby had a diagnosis of uh, um, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, uh, which is a complicated and uh, high-risk cardiac lesion. Uh, During the pregnancy, the family had declined amniocentesis, uh, and in fact they spent um, the majority of the pregnancy and certainly the later part of the pregnancy living in Lebanon. Uh, so we d- did not have our usual opportunities for fetal uh, investigation, uh, planning and counselling. Uh, the baby was then born at uh, 37 weeks gestation uh, with really very severe uh, growth restriction, weighing in at under 1.6 kilos. Uh, there was a diagnosis of uh, trisomy 21 uh, and then an additional diagnosis of the so-called um, transient uh, myeloid leukaemia. It was, um, it was clear to me as one of the clinicians involved that this child had an inoperable cardiac lesion. Uh, but the next step forward for us as a team, we, we tend to formalise our decisions about uh, cardiac intervention for children by um, having a meeting, a conference with, uh, that involves senior cardiologists, uh, intensive care specialists from neonates and paediatric intensive care uh, and cardiac surgeons. So we, we had such a meeting uh, and that group made a decision uh, that no surgery would be offered. We then sat down with the family, uh, a, a few of us, a group, uh, to discuss that decision for no intervention with the family. And I wanted to reflect on the family's perspectives and comments during and after that discussion. Uh, To quote uh, the father, he said, he had a desire to choose whatever path is most likely to enable him to live forever, him being the, the child. And the mother had a strong sentiment that she understands palliative care and it may enable him to have a higher quality or higher time with the child. The father spoke to us explaining that his views were, you know, the foundation of his views were strongly uh, based on his Islamic faith uh, and that the principle of value for life was important to him. And what I found really unusual was at the end of this long meeting with the family, uh, they concluded Uh, and said to us, we can't make a decision um, about withholding surgery for our child. 
now, now, now hang on, what's, what's gone wrong here? We went into this meeting with no intention to offer surgery uh, in the first place. And, that, and we've concluded the meeting by saying we can't make that decision. Um, and I think Professor Steinberg uh, talked to this idea very well yesterday when he spoke about the um, brave new world of autonomous decision making. Uh, we went into this meeting to ha offer the family a discussion based on autonomous decision making, or in this instance it was probably autonomous decision sharing, uh, and that did not work for them. So what happened in the end was they made a very clear expression to us, uh, and they said, uh, I, I want you to make the decision for me. They asked me as the doctor, or the medical team, or the hospital as an institution, on their behalf to decide, which was interesting. It was a long discussion where, of course, like most autonomous decision-making conversations, you do talk about the things that could be done, the risks, the benefits, and that, that whole discussion to them left them with options, when indeed we had no intention of opening up options. So it kind of went wrong in that sense, even though it was autonomous decisions sharing. I think the process of explaining all the options, explaining the rationale behind the decision that had been reached, left them feeling like they had to choose between all these options, um, despite our best efforts to explain the, the scenario and the fact that we weren't intending to offer anything. We certainly didn't intend to give them options, but the end result was they felt they had them, which in, its, in and of itself is interesting. So just to move on, the next step we took, we, we, we did offer to make a decision for them because they asked for it. We went back to this forum, uh, we reached a unanimous decision once again that no surgery should be offered. Um, and then I went back to the family and took a very different approach. Um, what Prof Steinberg would have described yesterday as a school of Hippocrates approach. Um, I was, we just had a discussion where I explained the decision. Uh, the hospital has made a decision, this is what it is. Uh, I explained the reason for the decision in terms of improbable survival, morbidity of the procedure, and probably most importantly that the surgery would likely expedite death, knowing their values about life. And at that point they were fully accepting and thanked us for making a decision. So I guess the summary of the case that Bennett's described so far is we have this young baby boy severely underweight who has a duct-dependent circulation which is currently being maintained on prostaglandin in our intensive care unit. He has an inoperable cardiac condition. Bennett, what would normally happen for children in this circumstance when they do not have surgery as an option? Um, so in, in the instance of this child, he has um, a lesion which is dependent on infusion of the medication prostin. Um, and when that medication is ceased, uh, the circulation will be not compatible with life and death will ensue. Uh, the timing of that is very unclear because it can uh, be a day or it can be many, many weeks before um, the duct closes. And obviously the landscape of caring for that child at the, at the end of life um, would be impacted greatly by how many other life-sustaining therapies the baby was on. So some children in these circumstances are on ventilation and inotropes and they have a short end-of-life care procedure. Um, this baby was just on prostin. Um, so we had to entertain what um, cessation of prostin would look like for him, knowing that it could be quite prolonged, the, the 
period of end-of-life care? So from my understanding, it's the cessation of prostin that happens next, facilitating memory making and, I guess, what we would hope to be a good quality death. So Emelina, from a palliative care perspective, we met this family at this time, and I'm interested in your assessment of this baby and their family. Um, so we met this baby at day seven of life. Um, he was very small. He was nested beautifully in an open cot. He was bottle feeding on demand and having breastfeeds once a day. He was initially on high flow, but this was weaned off over a few days. And the only intervention, as we mentioned, was that he was receiving um, prostin through his pick line. And as we came to know this baby and this family, we could see he was a very settled baby. He enjoyed cuddles and kangaroo time. He uh, would be sung to by his mother. His mum would speak about how he loved bath time and he would sleep for hours afterwards. His dad would sit and say prayers to him over the cot while he slept and his siblings would come in occasionally um, after school hours, but their interaction with him was very limited because of the hospital environment. But this was essentially a baby that was doing many of the things that a normal, healthy newborn would. He just happened to need this medication and was in hospital for that. In your conversations with the families, at this point in time, knowing that their boy does not have surgery as an option, what were their hopes? So the parents had come to accept that he would have a shortened life um, and they still hoped and prayed that Allah would give them a miracle and that he would continue to live. Um, but really by this point their goals and their hopes were that they would have as much time as possible with him and for them that meant staying on the prostin and that he would have a good quality of life and for them that meant him being comfortable and that he would be at home with them, with their family. And I think that when speaking to the parents about the um, proposed withdrawal of prostin, they were quite bewildered that that would be the course of action that the hospital would take. Mum had asked, how could people do this? Um, she would say, I know it's not gonna fix him, but he's happy now and the prostin isn't causing him any harm. She asked what did he need to do in order to prove that he could stay on the prostin. I think what this mum was seeing was that her baby wasn't just surviving in this space, he was very much living. He was happy, he was having good experiences. Um, and he wasn't dying. So for his parents, they felt he wasn't dying and that if we were to withdraw the prostin, that would be an active step towards hastening his death. I think we can acknowledge that from the dad's perspective, um, being Lebanese born and having a strong Islamic faith, culturally and religiously this was completely inappropriate for him. He said that um, it would be Allah who would choose when his child would die and that if we were to remove the prostin that would be us choosing and that's not okay. And his mum, she was Australian born. Um, and although she was also is, had Islamic faith, she was never really speaking in terms of religion. She was speaking more philosophically about the value of this baby's life and his living experience. Um, and she was horrified by the idea that, and thought it was unethical that we would remove the prostum. 
And we've talked in the past how interesting it was across the journey for the family that there was a part of their journey where they specifically requested decision-making on their behalf, on their child's behalf, and a later part where that was an, a completely opposing view from them, uh, where they didn't want us to choose to stop the prostin. Um, so, yeah, I th it was very interesting listening to Stefania's talk before about medical futility um, and how values play into these decisions. Um, I think that in terms of the surgical decision not to proceed with surgery, the hospital's decision very much aligned with um, where the parents' goals were at. The hospital made it very clear, or the cardiac team made it very clear that um, the risky nature of this surgery was likely to uh, hasten his death rather than prolong his life, um, and that is not what the father wanted. Um, but when it came to the prostin, um, our, I think the hospital stance was really that, you know, we do not give, we give prostin as a bridge to surgery, we don't give it indefinitely, this child is not having surgery, therefore the prostin should be stopped. Um, and I think this, if we think about it, it's kind of a medical futility argument, whereas the parents were saying that he's on prostin, he's living, and he's not suffering, and he's doing what babies do. So they couldn't defer that decision-making to the hospital. And, and John will be pleased to know that we managed to have all these discussions without using the fertility word. Yes. <laughs> So as, as a wider team, we were left with the question whether ongoing provision of prostin was ethically permissible in a child with an inoperable cardiac condition. And I now invite you guys to share your thoughts. I was just wondering if um, the sort of extent of the cardiac lesion was kind of known prenatally and if there was ever a thought of never starting the prostin um, and if you guys sort of ever thought about that when you were facing this? So yes, the extent of the cardiac lesion was uh, known preoperatively. Um, the challenge, as I mentioned, was that the we only had one opportunity to assess the child late in gestation, which is quite different to our usual approach. Um, what we often do there's always a degree of uncertainty with the sophistication of fetal echocardiography. Um, and at the moment, at least, there's a view that um, a child needs a period where they're stabilised on prostin and has a proper um, postnatal assessment with more complete imaging to allow a decision to be made. Uh, I'm not aware, certainly in our practice, of anyone who's made a complete decision on the basis of fetal imaging alone, with the exception of babies who undergo early termination of pregnancy. From an ethical point of view, it seems to me that we need to talk about um, informed consent, if you like, so that there was a decision made about not doing the surgery and you had the discussion with the family and they got to that point. But at that time, were they informed that if a decision for surgery was no, then that would inevitably mean that the prostaglandin, the prostin would be stopped? Or did that come as an absolute new issue to consider after that first decision was made? It was discussed, um, but not in great detail in, in early on and how the care of the baby over the course of what could be days to weeks um, would proceed uh, was an ongoing discussion. And we were working it out ourselves. Uh, we involved the palliative care team. We tried to see what these babies and the family's needs were going to be and how to work 
upper plan for care at the end of life. So it was a work in progress and no, no detailed conversation about how and when the prostin would be ceased was had, but a statement that it would be ceased was certainly made. Whether they were fully informed about the consequences of that statement, I can't be sure. Thinking about this in terms of zone of parental discretion, could you clarify for me what, uh, what is the harm or the potential disadvantage of continuing prostin uh, since it uh, can keep the child alive? Uh, and since it can keep the child alive, uh, is this not within the zone of parental discretion? And, and, do you want to answer? I'll <laughs> I think it is, and that's how we interpreted it. Um, to answer your question, though, so yes, Proston does keep the child alive, uh, but what is the harm of Proston? Um, Long-term delivery of Proston uh, does come with complications. The predominant ones are this child, uh, because of the cardiac lesion, is at risk of necrotizing enterocolitis and that's a cumulative risk over time. Uh, we had chosen to feed the child because it was in the interest of the child's comfort. Um, that risk would be present with or without prostin. The predominant ongoing risk of delivering prostin was the need for a um, venous access device um, and the eventual risk over time of um, a, a, a ventricular ac a, a intravenous access being associated with infection. Um, so the d delivery of prostin in and of itself was causing no harm until something went wrong. I think certainly amongst the team when we were thinking about this um, aspect of care within the zone of parental discretion, we also um, wondered about whether getting more definitive venous access, if that was the case. Babies with prostin often have two intravenous lines just in case one packs up. Um, this family was very keen to take this baby home they wanted their child home with the rest of their family, who was very much part of their family. And how we would manage, how would we practically manage that should his IV line tissue at home, whether we get a pick, whether we get a port, if we were going to continue this intravenously. And whilst it was controversial amongst the teams, there were enough senior people who supported the view that it was reasonable, it was ethical, to continue delivering intravenous prostin to this baby until such a time that a complication made it no longer uh, possible or that the burdens of complications became unacceptable for the child. Having I think that's that, the consensus Having said that, reached. amongst the discussion in the senior members of the team, there was also concern that if the baby, for example, developed necrotizing enterocolitis because of something that we sustained, would we have a duty of obligation to manage that as we would manage any baby with necrotizing enterocolitis and continue intravenous antibiotics plus or minus surgery if they needed it because of something that we persisted with? Um, <clears throat> thanks for the case. Um, just a couple of thoughts. We've heard about that this baby has reasonable quality of life and we've heard about the father's initial request to prolong life for as long as possible. And we've also heard that I think it was the mother that commented, we're still waiting for Allah to perform a miracle. So I'm just interested in what the team thought the true, I guess, rationale or reasoning behind prolonging life was in this baby and, and whether, if it is to prolong it so that Allah can perform a miracle, whether we're in effect colluding with the family and promoting unrealistic goals. Interesting term, colluding with the family. We probably were. We were working with them collaboratively to try and reach some common goals. Um, they're common goals we haven't 
got to before. Like this is uh, this is the first time I've done such a thing, um, but it seemed reasonable. If the rationale was to prolong life so that Allah had the chance to perform a miracle, I wonder if that's different from prolonging life because there is a good quality of life and there's inherent sanctity in that life. Uh, the latter thing you said would be my view. Um, but, but of course, respecting the family's view, they may have looked at it differently. I, I never got the sense from Dad, sorry, from Mum, that that was her wish for prolonging life. I think, um, I think they were very realistic that he was going to have a shortened life. It was just a wish that they had that he would live forever. Um, but I think they were very much grounded in the reality that he was going to die. Um, but they truly felt that he had a good quality of life in that space and we had explicit discussions with mum that if he was to continue on Proston and he was to develop um, any suffering because of that, um, that that would be a point at which we would stop the Proston. She was very accepting of that. And certainly, Dan, I think, I think one of the phrases, we didn't put up the quote, but one of the phrases she said is, I know he's going to die, but he's not dying now. He's living and you will be causing him to die sooner. Sorry, Pat, that's one there. Yeah. Uh, when the parents were deferring the decision, was there at any point a consideration to consult, for example, the Islamic Council of Victoria or their personal scholar, imam? So actually, the family opted not to. That's really interesting. They opted not to involve their religious community. They actually opted not to share the news of this with their extended family. They kept it very much within their nuclear family and a few trusted people. Um, and I can't comment to their reasonings behind that, but I, I was very cognizant of that fact that they kept it very personal and were given the options, but chose to manage it their way. I guess, so we, we investigated delivering the prostate at home, John. You know, we investigated that we could use a CAD pump like they do for other children on in the cardiac unit, that the parents could learn how to change the device. We investigated using community palliative care and whether we could use it in one of our drivers and whether that flow rate would fit through the IV access. We even looked at whether we could deliver prostin orally because we know that there are case reports in Hong Kong about that. It's not being done in this institution. I don't know the dosing. I don't know the. I don't know how you'd formulate it. But we thought all this we did behind the scenes without sharing this bit of knowledge with the family. But we tried our best to think about ways to do that and work around it. Now. You know, I can't speak for the pharmacy's opinion on it, but we consulted them about the stability of it. They said it would last for 24 hours, it would change 24 hours. We thought about the practicalities of that, but certainly it did not seem that it would tie this baby or their family to the hospital to administer it. The, the intention we were working through with palliative care was for uh, care uh, of the child at home, uh, probably or potentially with an intravenous device to deliver proposed at least initially for as long as the line that we had uh, was without complication. But we didn't quite get there. So I guess um, this little baby was maintained on Proston for a further 13 days um, in the hospital and this was until IV access was lost and actually through our conversations the burden of suffering was agreed upon that when IV access was lost we would give this baby two attempts for further IV access and after that we thought the threshold, we agreed with the family that the threshold of suffering was exceeded and that's exactly what happened. Interestingly, at the time, there was a family meeting at the, at the time as we were still negotiating um, discharge planning when the IV access was lost, the two attempts happened 
and the parents almost immediately said, okay, it's time to go home. And there was absolutely no question in their mind that, that, that the decisions had been made, that they wanted to get home, that was where they needed to be, and they went home. And uh, they were given a time frame at that stage that this little baby could live several days, hours to months, and I did the first home visit, and it was absolutely stunning. This family had this baby, he was constantly held, never put down by himself. His four older siblings were there, all peering over him. Um, they spoke very joyously of their time there, and he was at home for eight days until he died very peacefully with his family. And, and for this family, that was the value of a peaceful death. Just before I give um, final thanks to the speakers, um, just a little idea to share with you. On, on my office door, I have a Snoopy cartoon, and Charlie Brown says to Snoopy, one day we're all going to die, Snoopy. And Snoopy says, yes, but on all the other days we won't. So take that with you. And I just want to thank um, Stefania, James, Sid, Emmalina and Bennett. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the team at Essential Ethics. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. The podcast was recorded at the Royal Children's Hospital. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. If you would like to know more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, the Royal Children's Hospital, including our annual conference, visit our website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired. Be inspired.